Well, welcome again. And not going to go very far into James chapter 3 this week. I'm just going to cover one verse. But it's a very important verse and it has big ramifications for us and the church at large as well. And it's good for us to understand what's happening and the implications for us. And it's James chapter 3 verse 1. God is telling us that there is a stricter judgment for those who teach the Bible or those who have positions of authority in the church. And I thought we'd start with our memory verse today. Are you ready? Let's see how well you do. So, you ready? James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Awesome. All right. Little story. When the girls were little, I hope I don't embarrass them too much, <laughs> but when they were little, I remember Davina especially, being the oldest, you know, she'd want to help mow the lawn. And so you should be pushing the lawnmower, but because she was too small to do it herself, you know, I'd be behind her helping her push the lawnmower. And, you know, when the lawn was finished being mowed, you know, of course we said, oh, well done, Davina, you did a great job. Now, not to put Davina down, but who really mowed the lawn? It was Dad or Mum, whoever, you know. and. Who provided the lawnmower? It was us, yeah. And, you know, who provided the, the fuel? It was us, yeah. But who gets the reward? Davina. <laughs> she gets all the credit for mowing the back lawn. And rightly so. She put in a lot of effort. She was willing and she did her best. You know what? That's what it's like for us. When we stand before God at the beam of seat, at the judgment, it's the judgment of rewards. We're using gifts that God has given us. They're given to us to use, but they came from God. And by whose strength do we do these good deeds, these good works? By whose strength do we share the gospel? It's God's strength, right? And what happens at the judgment seat of Christ when we get our rewards? We've shared the gospel with these people. Or we've managed to forgive or love or show mercy or all those things. Who did that? Was it me or was it God? It was God working through me, yeah? And yet I get the, the credit for it. At the reward judgment, because God says, Well done, good and faithful servant. It's pretty amazing, eh? It's just like the demeanor and, and Kezia later on when she was a bit older. <laughs> Being able to help with mowing the lawn. We get rewarded for what God does in us and through us by His power, by His strength, and by His gifting. And that's why as we read in Revelation, that we will throw our crowns down before him, recognizing that it's not of us, it's all of God. 
And so when we talk this morning about the judgment seat of Christ and a stricter judgment, it's important that we realize the context of the Bema seat judgment and we don't let it condemn us or put fear into our hearts unnecessarily. Yes, it is true that Davina could have said, no, I don't want to help. Okay? And then she wouldn't have got any praise. And what would have happened then? Dad would have mowed the lawn himself. Yeah? The job still gets done. God's plans don't rest on my obedience or disobedience. But my reward does. So the beam of seed of Christ, when we are judged for reward, for the things we choose to do out of love and thankfulness for God, when we allow Him to work through us, whether it be loving people or sharing the gospel or serving or all those different types of works, parenting selflessly, there's so much that we're going to be rewarded for, but if we do it for Christ, it will last. We will get rewarded for those things. So, Last week, we covered James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, and we learned about the two kinds of works and the two kinds of faith. Do you remember what they were? Yep, there was dead works, religion, as it says in Hebrews. And then there's living works, as I call them. (laughs) James says, faith that works. It's faith that produces works that are pleasing to God to contrast them to the dead works described in Hebrews, I call them living works, because they come from a living relationship with God. They come from a living faith. So there's a dead faith, which doesn't produce living works, it produces dead works. And people can be religious, but they may not be believers. But we can also have a living faith, which comes from genuine belief and repentance. So, John Corson said, it is not faith or works, it is not faith and works, it is faith that works. And we're going to see this starting to be put into practice now. And we're going to come into James chapter 3. And James warns us that there will be greater accountability or stricter judgment for those who take up the role of teaching the Bible in a public setting in the church. So, what are two things that a person needs to be before they should be appointed or given the role of teaching in the church? The first one is they need to be anointed. People need to see that they have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the gifting to teach. Secondly, they need to be appointed by man. What I mean by that is that in Titus and Timothy and the pastoral epistles, What does God do? He lays out requirements, minimum standards of moral character that a person must have in order to be given that authority, that position in the church. So anointing, the gifting, and also the appointing when man, the people in the church, examine that person's life and say, is that person worthy, in a sense, according to their character, to be in this position of authority? So, let's get into it. James chapter 3, we're just going to read verses 1 and 2. For context, so, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. 
for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. So, that's comforting, isn't it? For we all stumble in many things. Okay, James is putting himself in there, and so can we. We're going to talk about that in more depth next week. So, focusing on verse 1, it says, Let not many of you become teachers. Why not? Because we shall receive a stricter judgment. So, those who want to become teachers in the church need to realize that God will hold us accountable to a higher standard. So I could just apply it to, you know, pastors and teachers, but I'm going to also apply this to everybody. Why? Because guess what? As believers, we are all tasked with preaching the gospel and making disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 18 and 20. And that's God's mandate for all believers. Okay? goes beyond the government mandate. It may not be a public ministry as such, but when we share the gospel with our friends and family, we need to share it properly. We need to share accurately and with the right motive. So the level of accountability may not be as high as being a pastor or Bible study leader or Sunday school teacher, but all believers will be accountable to some degree when we stand before Jesus at the beam of seat. And as we're going to find, a part of our reward will be Christ determining if we have been faithful to obey his command, his mandate, the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, you know, in the business world, what happens? The more authority and responsibility you have, what do you get? More money, okay? You get more perks, more money. Why? Because it's a harder job. There is more responsibility. There's more accountability. There's that weight resting on their shoulders. Because something goes wrong, whose fault is it? Their fault. You know, the CEO of a company, if something goes wrong, who gets a sack? It's the CEO, right? They're out. So, while we don't, or we shouldn't, and there's some that do, but we shouldn't work for reward down here, we are aware that we'll be reward in heaven. Okay, It's not our primary motivation, but as we're going to see later, Paul was looking forward to his reward. It's not wrong to look forward to your reward. Paul was looking forward to the crown that was waiting for him. He was running the race to earn the crown, to receive the crown. As he says, as the Lord has waiting for me. I mean, why wouldn't you look forward to a greater opportunity to serve in the kingdom of God, in the millennial reign? I'm looking forward to doing what I can here to show myself faithful to receive more opportunity, more responsibility in the millennial reign. Now, Jesus describes this link between authority and responsibility and reward in Luke 12, 42-48. And the Lord replied, A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. So really important there. Give the responsibility. He gives us responsibility. Every one of us has responsibility given to us by God. Whether you're a parent, whether you're at work, 
the people you talk to, the people that God has put in your life to share the gospel with. It's a responsibility. Managing and feeding. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth. The master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while, and he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk? The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. And now we get into the nitty-gritty here in verse 47. And a servant who knows what the master wants, but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions, will be severely punished. But someone who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. And the principle here is, when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. You know, today, it's my opinion that there's people in the church who take the role of teaching the Bible very lightly. They're not considering the cost in terms of accountability and responsibility because we must give an account to the Lord. And it's not just what we teach, it's the way we live too. Because you can cause someone to stumble not just by false doctrine, but also by a sinful lifestyle. If you teach the right things, you teach accurately the Word of God, but you are living a life that is not reflecting what you're teaching, then you are also going to be a hypocrite and turn people away from God. The whole point here is that a person in authority in the church has great influence over those he teaches. Or in the case of Sunday school, it could be a lady teaching Sunday school. And this influence can be used for good or evil. People can be turned to God or away from God. And like it said in Luke 12.48, when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. And it's a guy, commentator called Moffat. He says, James has found that this department of church work, that is Bible teaching, teaching the word, had become extremely popular. Hence his warning about its serious responsibilities. God will judge us on the last day with special strictness on account of our influence over others. Now another reason I'm applying this to everyone is because, guess what? Guys, we're the pastor of our home. You know, ladies, you're raising your children in the admonition of the Lord. That's fathers, but you know, mothers share in that responsibility. Mothers also read the Bible to their kids. Mothers also reflect God's attributes in his character to their children. And so verse 1, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. So the question now I'm going to ask is, when will we be judged? Is it now or is it later? Well, the main judgment is going to be at the Bema Seat judgment. It's the judgment of rewards. And it's only for believers. Jesus comes, snatches us away, takes us up to heaven, and guess what? We're all looking forward 
to the rapture when we get out of here, right? But there's something else we should be looking forward to, and that is the beam of seat, the judgment, the reward judgment. When God will reward us for all the things we have done for Christ. Now, we find this judgment described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 to 15. And it says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building, according to the grace of God which was given to me. As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than what is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it. What day? Judgment day. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. So the more work that survives his judgment, the more reward. The less work that survives in judgment, the less reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. So again, if you're at this judgment, the good news is you are going to remain in heaven because it's only for believers. But what you will realize when you get there is that what you're living for down here is going to make a big difference to your reward up in heaven. And it will matter when you get there. So what is the standard that God is going to use to judge us? Well, these verses give us a really big clue. What is the foundation that Paul is talking about in those verses? I laid the foundation. What is the foundation? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. Yep. I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So as we are sharing the gospel, as we are teaching the word of God, are we in agreement with the word of God? Are we teaching the full gospel, the gospel of grace? Are we speaking man's words or God's words? Now, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is at the end of his life and he describes his ministry and tells those who are listening that he is innocent of the blood of all men. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> does it mean that he hadn't murdered anyone? Well, actually he had. So what does it mean? What does it mean when it says that he is innocent of the blood of all men? Well, through the Bible, there is a common theme that those who are entrusted with representing God to the people have a higher accountability because of the eternal ramifications, the eternal consequences involved. And we see this in Ezekiel three seventeen to 19 It says, Son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman for Israel. Whenever you receive a message from me, warn people immediately. If I warn the wicked, saying you are under the penalty of death, but you fail to deliver the warning, they will die in their sins, and I will hold you responsible for their deaths. If you warn them and they refuse to repent and keep on sinning, 
they will die in their sins. But you have saved yourself because you obeyed me. Remember what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, around about verse 20. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. It's our responsibility. So in a similar sense to what we just read in Ezekiel, we also have a responsibility to reconcile people to God. It's a big responsibility, and we should take it seriously. So if you get a chance later on, read uh, Second, I'm pretty sure it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and the, the last part of that chapter. Now, as I was talking about Paul, he was a great example of a man who lived his life with the end in view, the judgment seat of Christ. He was running the race to win the prize, 1 Corinthians 9.24-25 and Philippians 3.14, and we'll read those later. He was running to win. Now, also notice here, in Paul's testimony here, when he's talking to the church leaders from Ephesus, he's meeting on the beach, they're having this prayer meeting. It's not just what he taught, the whole counsel of God that mattered, but also the way he lived. So listen carefully to what Paul said at the end of his life, what he's done, what he's reflecting on, and what he's looking forward to. So Acts 20, verses 24 to 35. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. What's the opposite of joy? Shame. Sorrow. Yeah? And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So what's his ministry? Sharing the gospel. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned, or avoided, okay, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, Notice that, the responsibility that is given to those in authority in the church. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years, Paul spent three years in Ephesus teaching. For three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul really put his heart into his ministry. He was really concerned for the eternal destiny of those who was teaching. Continuing in verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now here we come to the part where Paul describes not just what he taught, but his way of life. He modelled God's character. He modelled the Christian walk. Starting in verse 33. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. 
I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So, there we go. Paul is looking forward to the judgment day. And what's he going to be judged on? Not just what he taught, the whole counsel of God, but also his example and the way he lived. So, there's a movie called Thief in the Night. And we watched it on Sunday nights a little while ago. And in that series of movies, there's a pastor who didn't teach the true gospel, the whole gospel. He allegorized prophecy and he didn't teach or emphasize the soon return of our Lord at the rapture. And he didn't hold to the verbal or full inspiration or inerrancy of the scriptures. And as a result, many of his congregation were not saved and went into the tribulation. In this same movie, he was contrasted with another pastor who did teach the whole counsel of God, who taught a Christ-centered gospel and did teach prophecy correctly, encouraging people to live pure lives because Jesus could come back at any time. And you know what? Although that was just a movie, those two examples of those two pastors, one faithful to the Lord and one not, in fact, the one who was unfaithful or not faithful to share the word properly was not actually saved in the movie. But it's possible to be saved and still be not doing a good job. But in today's church, this is not fiction. There are many who have been led astray by either pastors who teach a works gospel or the prosperity gospel. And as we read previously in Matthew 7, many will confess, Lord, Lord, but will not be welcomed by Jesus. He will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So many of the people in these churches will either miss the rapture and find themselves in the tribulation, or worse still, they'll die now before the rapture and face an unwelcoming Jesus when they stand before him. Now, there's this really powerful letter. I found it in the Evidence Bible. It just illustrates how serious our calling is. And it's called A Dream of Judgment Day. And the context is Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, and it refers to God's fiery judgment to the great and terrible day of the Lord. So, this should ever be in the mind of the Christian. This is why we preach Christ, not to improve the lifestyle of the unsaved and not to change their lives. We preach Christ so that sinners may be saved from the wrath that is to come. May the following letter, written by pastor, stir your heart to do all that you can to lead sinners to genuine conversion. So this is a real pastor, it's a, a real example. Dear Brother Ray, I have been a pastor for 25 years. I always thought that I was doing a reasonably good job. Kind of like the folks who consider themselves good people. I had tried to preach what I thought was the whole counsel of God. I prayed over the years with many people to accept Jesus and make him Lord of their lives. My wife Judy and I moved to Rudisoya, New Mexico, about six years ago to plant a church. Shortly after arriving, I was convicted that something was horribly wrong with my ministry. I read the scriptures and prayed earnestly that God would show me what was wrong. The feeling continued to grow and I became depressed and moody. I asked Judy to pray for me and explained my problem. 
I didn't know if this was the Holy Spirit convicting or Satan attacking. She prayed that God would reveal the cause of my depression and make himself clear as he revealed any problem with my ministry for him. That night, I had the most terrifying, realistic, blood-chilling nightmare any man has ever had. I am a Vietnam veteran and I know a little about nightmares. Nothing in my experience has ever come close, nor do I ever want it to, to the horror of that night. I dreamed that it was judgment day, and I was standing right next to the throne of God. I noticed that to my left and to my right were pastors as far as I could see. I thought this was odd, that the Lord would reserve this front row space for pastors only. I looked out across the space of only a few yards and there were millions, maybe billions of people. Yet I could see each one of their eyes staring at me. As I studied this group, I noticed I knew many of them from times at the altar or ones who had sat under my teaching. I was pleased to see that they had all made it to heaven, but confused because I didn't look happy. They looked very angry and hateful. Then I heard the voice of the Lord say, Away, I never knew you. I was suddenly frightened that what I was seeing were those who thought they were saved. Then I saw all of them pointing a finger at each of us pastors and saying together, in one voice that shook my soul, we sat in your church and we thought we were saved. Why didn't you tell us we were lost? Tears were pouring down my face and the faces of all those pastors. I watched as one by one those people were cast into hell. One and then another and another and another until they were all gone. I died inside as each one screamed in agony and gnashed their teeth, cursing us as I went into the lake of fire. Then I was looking into the face of Jesus, and he said to me, Is this the part where I'm supposed to say, Well done, my good and faithful servant? (laughs) I woke up with a scream and my heart pounding, and I was begging Jesus to forgive me. I died a million deaths that night. Since that night I have done two things on a daily basis. I do everything I can to preach the law before grace in the hope that conviction of sin will bring a sinner to true salvation. That's the full gospel of of grace. The other thing I do is pray for every person I've ever preached to, asking God to repair any damage I have done. I also never believe anyone when they tell me they are saved. It is my duty to challenge them and search out the solidness of their salvation. I'm learning to be more effective and confident as I teach others how to share their faith by using the law. I have seen several people saved who thought they were saved, as I have used the way of the master material to teach them evangelism. I do want to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant, and thanks to you and your team, that's Living Waters, I have a better chance of hearing them. Thank you. I just wanted to let you know, some pastors are waking up to the truth. The desire of my heart is to please God. I pray that my days of being a man pleaser are over, along with the nightmares. I also pray that God will use me to bring other pastors into the truth of the gospel message so that they will not have to face the nightmare that I did. Uh, Steve Kareens. So, very sobering, and the whole point there is that we should be looking to the judgment. We want to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we should be examining ourselves and saying, is what I'm 
doing is what I'm saying, glorifying Christ. And if we go to Hebrews 4, 12 to 16, it says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. If we just took those verses and stopped there, it's like, it seems, this is too much, you know. Who am I to try and be good enough to please God? Who am I to be good enough to meet his standard? Well, we can't. And so that's why in the very next verse, or verses, God gives us the way to please him. So Hebrews 4 verse 14, continuing on from those verses about being accountable to God, it says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There will we receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. So think of our story at the start of the service. Good old Davina, pushing the lawnmower. We come to God, and He gives us the strength. He gives us the love. He equips us. As long as we're willing to submit to Him. So, yes, it is true that we will have to give an account for everything we do, say and think. Jesus said every idle word we'll have to give an account for, right? And even our secret motives. But this is not meant to drive us to despair, rather our realisation of our complete inability to live a life that pleases God on our own strength should drive us to the throne of God where we will find all the grace, forgiveness and help that we need. Jesus, our high priest, both knows our weaknesses and is interceding for us. Now, I was thinking about this and I thought about Peter. Peter's a beautiful example of this mercy and this grace that we can find at the throne of grace. So let's have a look at the story of Peter. Now, you know the story of Peter. He was so gung-ho, so self-reliant, and Jesus says to him, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, no. Never. I would die for you. I've got a prison for you. But Jesus says this in Luke 22.32. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, or Peter, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Isn't that amazing? You know, there's two ways you can go with this. You can say, listen guys, you're going to have to stand before God, so you better get your act together. You know what that is? That's beating the sheep. Saying, you better behave yourself or you're going to get spanked. (laughs) But that's not the way God is, okay? God encourages us. Don't lose sight of the fact that our God is a gentle God who walks with us, knows our weaknesses, understands that we are dust, and is praying effectively for 
us. So put yourself in Peter's shoes, okay? Think of times in your life where you've messed up. I've done it plenty of times. Did God ever stop loving Peter? Did Jesus stop loving Peter? Did he give up on Peter? No. Did he know that Peter would deny him? Absolutely. It was an incredibly painful experience to be denied by one of your close friends. But what an incredible act of mercy and love when Jesus let Peter know that although he would deny him, he wasn't finished with Peter. All Peter had to do was repent of his sin and then he would be used by God yet again. So Jesus had a plan and a purpose for Peter's life and God's grace was greater than Peter's sin. And this verse in Romans 5.20 is really important for us to understand. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And consider this, right? Peter fell the hardest. All the disciples ran away when Jesus was crucified, but Peter fell the hardest. He was the one who denied Jesus. But guess who God used to be the spokesman on the day of Pentecost and to bring 3,000 people to Christ? The guy that denied him. Isn't that amazing? That's grace. That's mercy. That's what God does. God is a gracious God. And I want to share with you some of my favorite verses from the Psalms, and it talks about the compassionate nature of God and the way he deals with us. So to keep things in perspective, Psalm 103, 8-14. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Again, think of the story of Davina the Loma and just remember that I wasn't complaining that she wasn't pushing hard enough. I was just happy that she was having a go. Okay? You submit to the Lord. You do your best. As you're submitting to him, you do your best. And that's all God wants, you know. So don't let Satan condemn you. Don't let Satan use your failings to drive you to despair. Instead, like Peter, we let our failings remind us that we are weak and then we run back to our Heavenly Father, our loving Heavenly Father. And what does he do? He runs toward us, yeah? And he welcomes us back. He strengthens us, equips us, empowers us and encourages us to have another go. So again, I'm going to read Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the Christian walk is not about trying harder, but simply learning to rest in the Lord. And Hebrews 4.10 says, For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. Rested from their labors means resting from doing things in your own strength. So there's two ways of getting things done. We can get things done by our own strength, or by God's strength. Now, Peter thought he could get things done by his own strength. 
Peter said in Luke 22, 33, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. You know, Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me. He said, no, no way. I'm ready to go to prison with you, even die with you. What did Jesus do? He waited patiently for Peter to fail as he trusted in himself. <laughs> Learn the lesson that he is weak. Repent of his lack of submission to God and then be used again. But this time, Peter was what? He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, Peter had entered into God's rest, meaning he was relying on God's power and not his own. So, it's an important principle. God never gives us a job to do unless he first gives us the resources to do it. Where God guides, he provides, yeah? So, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, again, verses that really help me, and I pray them almost every day. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Given, past tense. We have received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself, by means of his marvellous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you and me to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So basically, you know that old saying, anything you can do, I can do better? Well, that's not quite true. But we can say, anything God can do, I can do, according to his will. Because if God is living in us, then he's the one who's empowering us, right? Does that make sense? If God is living in me, then I'm only limited by what God can do. And God can do anything. So there's nothing I can't do as long as it's according to God's will because he is the one who's empowering me. He's the one who's living in me. Paul had the same experience as Peter. He had to learn to stop relying on his own strength and to try and live a life that pleased God. He came to understand that by his own strength, he could never be good enough to please God, to live a life that pleased God. But then he learned the secret of living by faith, living by trusting in God and not himself. So Galatians 2, 19 and 20, more of my favorite verses. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So remember, Paul was a very religious man, yeah? He tried to keep the law. He did his best on his own strength. But all it did was show him he couldn't do it. It condemned him. Sorry, you are not good enough, Paul. And then it says, so I died to the law. What does it mean? I stopped trying. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, my old self, who lives, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So how do we live? It's not me. It's not by my strength. It's by Christ living in me. It's his power. It's his strength. His desires. His love. His mercy. His grace. Being poured out on those around me as I walk in the Spirit. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what did Jesus say about trying to live the Christian life, he said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, 
for without me you can do nothing. So, conclusion. I'm hoping that we can understand, or we can see, that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, what we are really being judged or rewarded for is not the things we did on our own strength, but only those things that we did through the power of God living in us and working through us. It's not a matter of us trying to be good enough, but rather that we're willing to submit to God's will for our lives. It's all about submission. If we are submitted to Christ, then he will have his way in us, his will will be done through us, and then he rewards us for the good things that he did. I love it. God rewards us for the good things that he did. It's an awesome deal. I get rewarded for the things that God did through me, using the gifts and talents that he gave me, and all done by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in me. All I have to do is stop trying to do things by myself, stop living independently of God, and instead learn to trust in and depend on God, living a life obedient to the Word of God, and the day-by-day leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the New Covenant's all about, being led by the Holy Spirit. Moment by moment, day by day. So Father, thank you for, Lord, these potentially condemning and scary verses. There's a stricter judgment for those who are teachers. But Lord, in context, we know that we can just come to you and we can find help and grace in our time of need. Lord, you give us responsibilities. We're parents. We're working in different fields. We're reaching out to lost people. We've got lots of hats that we wear. And Lord, the task can seem overwhelming a lot of the time. Lord, even just being a husband or a wife is something that we just simply cannot do in our own strength. But Lord, you want to reward us for being a good husband or a good wife or a good parent. And how? Simply by us letting you live your life through us. I can't love my wife the way you want to, so I step aside and I allow you to love her through me. And then you reward me for loving her the way you do. So I thank you, Father, for these things. And it's the same with raising kids. You know, we can't do that. We don't have the patience in and of ourselves. But Lord, you do. So help us to step aside and allow you to love our kids and to have the wisdom to know how to bring them up. And to help us, yeah, that moment by moment, being led by the Holy Spirit, being taught by the Word of God, to know what to do and how to do it and have the strength to do it. And then be rewarded for it. And help us to be looking forward to that day when you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen.